there are plenty of textbooks out there put on by so-called leaders in the industry that have a ton of misinformation out there. And they are typically, I mean, I own them. I read them. I actually followed their stuff back in the day. Um, and, and I've experimented with, with myself. I mean, you would freak out if I told you some of the, the crazy peak week protocols that I have done myself. Is bodybuilding about selfies, steroids, magazines, and muscles? How do I become a successful pro bodybuilder or fitness competitor? Where do I even start if I'm new? And the biggest question of all, what are the judges looking for anyway? Even today with the internet, many people first discover bodybuilding by word of mouth. The lack of regulation has caused a boom of unqualified coaches, scattered info, biased advice, dangerous protocols, and posing trends that are a hot mess. After 20 years in the business, I have seen it all. Week after week, I'm going to talk about taboo topics that get swept under the rug, provide you tips and strategies to gain a competitive edge and stand out on stage in any division or federation. I'm going to answer all the burning industry questions without the bias. I have competed across six federations, earned pro status in three, and judged in two. I've coached posing and choreography for men and women in all federations and divisions. I know just how much competing means to you. I'm your host, Michelle Welcome, and you are listening to the Everything Else in Bodybuilding podcast. Be sure to download your free guide, Five Things Every Bodybuilder and Fitness Competitor Needs to Know Before Your Next Show at eeinbb.com. That's www.eeinbb.com. Welcome back to the Everything Else in Bodybuilding podcast. I'm super excited today. It's an extension. Um, today's podcast is an extension all about peak week. If you tuned into last week's episode, I talked all about peak week fails. And this week, I'm going to be talking about all things peak week that come from a science perspective. I'm excited today because I have a co-host with me today, my husband. Oh, man. Vasilios Metropolis. Oh, geez. You've been an entertainer, artist, entertainer, and co-host. fitness enthusiast. I'm pretty much taking over the, the show at this point. And what we also have, I'm, I'm so excited for our guest today, because Guillermo Escalante has a doctorate in science. You're also a professor of kinesiology, and you've also been competing on a high level in bodybuilding for over 20 years, right? And That's right. And you've also been an athletic trainer, which is interesting. So you've been on the front lines. So speaking of peak week itself, you've been on the front lines. You've been that guy at competitions that has rescued people when there's been peak week disaster. So I'd love for you to take a moment and just maybe elaborate a little bit more about yourself and maybe talk about maybe the worst thing that's ever happened at a show when you were an athletic trainer. Oh, no, absolutely. Yeah, that's actually a nice, uh, interesting tidbit that I like to talk about for for several years, uh, actually from 2012 all the way to 2019, I uh, was the the sports medicine person for uh, all of muscle contests. Uh, so I covered uh, the the USA's, uh, all of the regional shows, local shows, pro shows for muscle contests. And uh, my main job was basically to uh, ensure competitor uh, competitor health. So uh, they were actually, uh, I, I'm going to say, on top of the curve, very innovative in in having uh, an actual trained professional. Uh, in there to actually, uh, hey, let's look at these competitors, make sure that their health is good. And uh, and they basically gave me uh, all decision-making power. So if I felt that an athlete needed to be pulled off stage, 
they were pulled off stage. Didn't matter what the athlete liked or didn't like. If they needed to go to the hospital, I would send them there. Now, that didn't happen all the time, but um, I, I did have uh, cases of, you know, people very typically effects of dehydration. So from as simple as as uh, cramps all the way to uh, low blood pressure, passing out, uh, et cetera. So I would I would definitely if they were feeling those symptoms, I would, you know, just come early, make sure that I was assessing their vitals, uh, getting a little bit of a history. Uh, and then because I have that background in bodybuilding, asking those specific questions that maybe the EMTs and paramedics may not know to ask specifically. Uh, so things of like, hey, did you take diuretics? If so, what diuretics did you take? What dosages did you take? How much did you take? When was the last time you took it? When was the last time you drank? Uh, maybe it's hypoglycemia that they're suffering from. So uh, some of them maybe took insulin and they took too much and they didn't need enough carbs and they're 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 already uh, highly insulin uh, sensitive. So I want to make sure that that they are able to take in enough carbohydrates. So that would be another marker that I would measure is, uh, hey, what's their blood sugar levels like uh, today and make sure that I'm not uh, thinking that it's something else. So um, I, I think probably the the biggest thing that I had, I did I did pull a couple of competitors, uh, some big name people. Uh, off stage where uh, I would, they were having some symptoms and I would uh, listen to their heart, uh, take their vitals. And, and, and I noticed, you know, something that wasn't quite right. And I would want further testing. Uh, I would uh, ask a little bit more on the medical history and I would put all the pieces together and I would say, yeah, you know, it's probably not worth it for you to be stepping on stage uh, and be here under those lights and, and be under this, this pressure. And, and, I did send them over to to the hospital in some cases, and um, and a lot of times they wouldn't return. Uh, they would have to uh, have IVs put in and uh, be appropriately rehydrated, uh, and 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 that was obviously for their safety. and And I have to take my hat off to uh, the people at Muscle Contest because they did put their their athletes' health first, and um, and they would just make it available to to know, like, hey, if you're not feeling good, we have a person back here. Don't don't wait. Don't you know? Let him check you out, and and then we'll we'll make the better decision. And of course, nine times of, out of well, how many? What sorry? percentage? What percentage of people actually did did would come up to you and say, "Hey, I'm not feeling good." Versus the percentage in relation to the people that are on stage that you're like, mm, "Something's not right." So, how many actually came to you versus how many did you say like, mm, "We need to get you off stage"? Um, I would say it was probably. I would say maybe 50% would come up beforehand uh, if they weren't feeling well, or oftentimes, luckily we had the expediters trained. So they, they had, I had, we had extra pair of eyes everywhere. The tanning people were trained. So we had extra pair of eyes and then uh, we were on a walkie talkie and they knew it's like, Hey, if somebody isn't feeling well, you know, call me right away. And, and then I would just get them evaluated. And, and, and oftentimes nine times out of 10, the competitor would be fine with just getting a little bit of fluids in them, some electrolytes in them, maybe a little bit of extra carbohydrates in them, um, maybe just a, an anxiety component, just getting them to relax a little bit. That would often help. Wow. I mean, you obviously had your hands in this in crazy ways for such a long time. For all the listeners out there, and including myself, we jumped right into things. I know you're eager with all your questions, but I'd be There's curious, so like your, your background. I mean, how did you get into this? You know, I, I listened a little bit to a couple podcasts. I know you started at a young age, I think 14 years old or whatnot. You've been lifting a long time. So if you could just let let me know, let everybody know, like, what? how did you get into this? What's your passion for this? Why is it here? And, and where are you at today with it? 
Yeah, absolutely. So I probably like a lot of bodybuilders. I started as a young athlete. Personally, I played football, ran track. I did that through high school and college. Uh, and then when I finished, I still wanted to be able to compete in some way, shape or form. I just didn't know in what avenue I wanted to compete. And a friend of mine, uh, I was a personal trainer at the time at 24 Hour Fitness, and he was the fitness director. He was in bodybuilding. And he says, you should try bodybuilding, Guillermo. And I said, I said, his name's Chris. I said, Chris, you're crazy if you think I'm going to step on stage with that weird color on and put on put on these tiny little briefs. I said, I'm not doing that. He said, just come to a show and see what it looks like and, and check it out. So I went to the California State Championship, I think in 2000 with him as a spectator. Um, I remember watching the competitors. Lee Priest was competing and it was it was very, very breathtaking. In fact, even looking at the amateur competitors, I mean, these were not even national level people uh, looking at the level of competition. It was really amazing. I mean, I said, how can you tell the difference between an amateur and a pro? Like, you, you know, how do you even know? Uh, and of course, I didn't have the trained eye back then to be able to differentiate. Um, but nonetheless, uh, a few months later, I said, yeah, you know what, Chris, I'm going to give it a shot. So I wasn't very big. Uh, I just I dieted down from a from a, a, a tiny tiny, teeny 165 pound guy down to about 142 pound guy. Um, I'm only five foot four and change five foot five. So, um, you know, five I foot five with shoes on as, as you like. Exactly. <laughs> five foot five with shoes on. Exactly. That's exactly right. So I, um, I, I gave my first, uh, show, uh, a go and, and I really enjoyed it. I, I think I placed top three in, in a novice division. Uh, mm-hmm. I was, uh, I think I was in the, the lightweight class and, uh, and I said, you know what? This is fun. I competed a few months later, uh, improved my placing. I think I got second place. And then um, and then it was downhill before you knew it. You know, I, I I did show after show, you know, taking anywhere from six months to maybe two years off in, depending on the on the on the year. Uh, and uh, and then I started competing. And, and even though I had the, the scientific background when I started, I, I did have a degree in, in athletic training. And I did have a degree. I was a strength. I was a CSCS. I was a certified strength and conditioning coach. I was a certified athletic trainer. I did have a, a background in in biology, organic chemistry, biochemistry, and the exercise sciences. And um, you know, I I, I understood the the, uh, the science to to the level of an undergraduate, right? Um, but I I like to read a lot, and and I was I was into it. Uh, I was working with other different athletes uh, more for. Uh, uh, track and field. Uh, we were, I was getting some athletes ready for the Olympic trials back then uh, in the sports medicine rehab side of things. Uh, so I was training, but differently. And then I started learning more about the nutrition for bodybuilding and, and the training for bodybuilding specifically. Always questioning because, you know, like, why are they doing this? Why are they doing that? You know, the CSCS says this, but, you know, why are they training with so much volume? And then I started kind of digging into more of the literature and the science. And, uh, and, and I think it's been ever since then, it's just been an evolving, growing love for uh, uh, an appreciation of the human body and understanding our own nutrition, our own biochemistry um, within there, even going into the pharmacology. You know, at my first two years, I, I competed as a purely natural competitor, um, but there was a peak interest in at first. I, to be honest, I was actually first completely anti, uh, you know, utilizing uh, PEDs. And then I, it got to a point after a couple of years was like, well, if I want to stay in the NPC and and be competitive, I have to make a choice. And then, uh, and during that two year period, I really educated myself on, on that side of things, which we don't learn in school. You know, there is no, 
certification for PED use, especially back in, in 2000. So I started reading more books. And um, luckily, I had a little bit of the scientific background to understand some of those concepts. Uh, and I was able to educate myself in that. And then it was just a uh, you know, learn as you go. Uh, I was my own experiment. I, you know, often I, I'm still my own experiment in, in a lot of sense. And then I got the opportunity to work with people of different levels. And, and uh, you know, I don't know how many shows I've done, but worked with, you know, individuals from the novice all the way to, to the Olympia stage. So it's very been cool. very, very rewarding. Very so cool. it's going to be very interesting to talk to you because of the fact that you have such an extensive background as not only a scientist, but as a bodybuilder itself. And if we start to kind of migrate into the topic of Peak Week itself, I mean, do you have any idea where it even started, this whole idea of Peak Week and um, the concept of drying out? Do you have any idea where that even came from? Yeah, well, where it came from, I mean, who knows? It's been around for a long time in terms of, you know, the the, the in in the in the bodybuilding circles and in fact that was one of the first things when when I was first when I first came about you know I remember my my friend Chris was you know he was like you know you have to dry out and you have to be and, and I I was listening to all this terminology and I was even back then I was trying to I'm like but but why what is the science why did why does that work you know and I was trying to understand the mechanisms and and what's in place and and questioning uh even back then you know it's like why this? Why that? And then, then you start reading a little bit, and it's okay. There's some scientific foundation to this, not so much for that. And you know, and then you then you start understanding how complex our our, our body is, and it's it's like, hey, you, you you can't just manipulate 35 variables and and hope for the best. It's like what what you do with one is going to impact the other five. Uh, so it's really important to understand uh, how our body works in, in unison and. And really, I mean, at the end of the day, it likes to stay in homeostasis and we're really trying to disrupt that homeostasis and it can be done, but it, it can have, it can be dangerous for one, if not done right. And uh, number two, it can, it can also have a big backfiring effect if done incorrectly, uh, which is some of the things that I see. And which is scary too, because it is something that could, I mean, this is people's lives we're talking about. And I started competing over 20 years ago too. And it was all word of mouth. Like there was, there was, there's yep. so much more people, there's so many more people like you stepping forward with some science and some actual, um, to me, like you have credibility. There's yeah, people knowledge. out there coaching that I'm looking at their credentials, trying to find them still, still looking. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and the only credential they have is, well, I have a client who want to show or I want to show. So it's really quite scary because what you're talking about is something that is, um, you know, just the idea of drying out for the layman. Can you explain what does that even mean to dry out? Can you explain it from somebody who maybe has no idea about the human body? They're just listening to their coach and what they're saying. Yeah. So I think, uh, drying out in, in bodybuilding terms, it basically means, you know, uh, trying to minimize the amount of water between between the muscle and the skin essentially um now the 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 misconception there is you know there is some extracellular water there for sure so our water basically our water is distributed in our body as you know is you know 60 70% water in muscle in particular it's about 70 plus percent water so uh when we're when we're looking at this we have total body water which makes up you know 60 to 65% of your total body mass for most healthy people uh you have this uh intracellular water which is water inside of the cell and you have this extracellular water which is water outside of the cell so what we're trying to do to dry out is essentially put flip this ratio which is 
basically it likes to be at about 66.6% and 33.3% intracellular to extracellular. So this is what, what your body likes to kind of stay at. Um, you're trying to kind of disrupt that ratio. So you have a higher relative amount of intracellular water and a smaller amount of extracellular water. And you're basically trying to minimize that compartment. Now, is that possible? Well, there was kind of a, a school of thought between two extremes, I'm going to say. Some people say it's like your body is that can never change. And the other extreme is like, of course, you can manipulate it. And of course, the answer somewhere in the middle is you can change it. And there's a new paper that just came out uh, about a month or two ago that actually shows like, yeah, you can actually uh, increase the intracellular to extracellular compartment in the right direction. However, there's different mechanisms you can do to get there. And if you time it wrong, it can actually backfire the wrong way where now you mess things up completely. So drying out in, 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 a, in a nutshell is essentially minimizing particularly the amount of water that's underneath the skin between the muscle. Can you explain what it means to be flat on stage versus uh, spilled over so you just you look like you're holding water or see are you holding water? Mm. Yeah, that's a great question. I'm <laughs> glad you asked that part, which is really important. So I'm actually going to start with C, first of all, because okay. this is, I think, the biggest misconception with people is, you know, are you really holding water or are you just really not lean enough? And I want to say probably nine times out of 10, you're just really not lean enough. So when a, when a coach or when a judge tells you, you are quote unquote holding water, I'm going to say 90-ish percent of the time, and that, that's, just, that's, a, that's a, a, an assumption from what I've seen, uh, an observation, it really means it's like, no, like that person really needs to diet for about another five to eight weeks to lose the extra five to 10 pounds of body fat. And that subcutaneous water, quote unquote, is really just body fat that is there. Uh, and because they're trying to make up to be in better condition by dehydrating themselves, now it's actually just dehydrated fat. Uh, and remember, fat is only about 10% water. So when you dehydrate fat, you still have fat. 90% of it is there. Whereas when you dehydrate muscle, which is 70% water, now you get this flat look, which is basically you drew water and glycogen out of the muscle. Uh, and that's basically what happens in a, in a very uh, low carbohydrate, uh, ketogenic type diet. As we know, you lose, you know, seven, eight pounds right off the bat by, by going from carbs 300 per, per day to less than 50 per day, you didn't lose fat. You know, you lose primarily water. You lost a little bit of fat. Um, and that is basically what happens uh, over time. So being flat in a sense means you lost glycogen and glycogen is good because glycogen draws water into the muscle, making the muscle look nice and full, nice and plump, which is if we're in bodybuilding, we want the muscles to look big and full. So I, we want to look like a full balloon, not like a dehydrated prune. So being flat means you did the job wrong, and now you look like a dehydrated plume muscle instead of like a full muscle uh, with a muscle belly. Being spilled over is when you kind of carb up too much, maybe take in too much water intake, maybe take in too much uh, sodium at the same time. And then now you, you, your muscle can't absorb all of that glycogen and all of that water. And then now it spills over into, into that extracellular area, giving you that smooth spilled over 
look. So there, there's kind of that that fine balance within there yeah. uh, where where you really have to time it right and and uh, and make sure that you're judging and assessing appropriately. I mean, there's so much complexity to this. We've- yeah, I mean, it, you know, it, it leads me into to the the thought of of hormones and you know, what our body does and doesn't do and how healthy is this? Obviously, I'm, I'm a little bit green in the bodybuilding world. I've been exposed to it through my wife here. Uh, we've been together, what, seven years now? Are we going on eight yet? I'm not counting or anything. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, I love it. I love training. I love doing what I do. Uh, but there's so many conflicting theories about what is good for us from a health perspective. Obviously, bodybuilding is a sport and people debate, well, sports isn't about health. But, you know, I mean, it's like this fine line of like, well, why am I going to the gym then? Why am I working out? I want longevity. I want a healthy body. And things you're talking about kind of lean into me like, man, is this even worth doing? You know, so I'm in this new kind of school of thought of trying to figure out the best way to keep myself in a uh, a good state of health as well as a good state of exercise while trying to understand what I'm doing for my body that's pro or negative, you know, and I hear these things of what you're talking about. And um, I'm just curious, like, what what do you think from a health perspective when you pull your body down like that, you're saying dry out, or, you know, you think about the hormones, or you think about your body's ability to maintain balance and whatnot. Is there, uh, is, is this bad for us? Is this good for us? Is it too much? Is there a timeline to it? Uh, too young, too old? Only so many times you can do it before you hurt yourself? You know, like, can you elaborate a little bit on that on just overall health and the sport in general? No, absolutely. And and I'll, and I, you have a great perspective there. And I mean, and I'm going to say, uh, I think bodybuilding often gets a bad rap, but I'm going to say any, any competitive fill in the blank sport taken to an extreme is not healthy, right? I mean, you take NFL football players, you know, they have a higher risk of, you know, uh, traumatic brain injury over time. And uh, they're known to have these other other symptoms over time. Uh, you take a runner uh, or even a, a power lifter, for example, they're probably going to have cartilage and, and joint issues earlier because you know what? We really probably aren't supposed to be running 100 miles a week for 35 years on end. So I think anytime that you take any competitive sport, whatever sport that is, and you take it to the extreme of being a world champion, you're going to have some sort of consequence associated with that. Now, there may be more or less uh, on some people versus others. So now the next question is, is you know, uh, how can I mitigate those factors and minimize the risk associated with it? Because I'm not going to say that, uh, you know, training and eating uh, and, and even to get as big as the, the world's biggest bodybuilders, the amount of food that is required to, 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 to get to that information. You talked about hormones. I mean, yeah, you're, you're going to develop signs of metabolic syndrome over time. After you get so big, you're going to have, you know, insulin resistance. you have to take, uh, you know, performance enhancement drugs that may actually accentuate and, and uh, lead you more into those components. Uh, just from the sheer amount of food and and all of these extracurricular activities uh, that that you're doing, and at the end of the day, you know our bodies weren't meant to, we're we're meant to be efficient individuals. I mean, we were meant to survive. If you look at our at our at our history, right at, at our evolution over time, you know we were hunters gatherers over time, and you know we didn't always. I mean, our 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 body is made to adapt to be able to live for long periods of time. It's not meant to be huge and to grow. I mean, that's very metabolically inefficient. You know, if we would have all lived, if we were 300 pound people with 8% body fat, you know, living 
2,000 years ago, we probably wouldn't be here today because we wouldn't have survived uh, over time. Or our, our, that's why our body adapted over time, because it's very metabolically costly to feed a 300-pound, 10% body fat individual. Um, so in the, in the health component, I think uh, you can definitely do it, uh, but you, you, need, you need to be careful. There are some risks it takes. So you want to mitigate those risks. How frequently you do it is another big thing. Uh, there are competitors that compete, you know, every six months. And I'm like, you know, what are you doing? You know, but of course, if you're a professional and your paycheck resides on that, then what's the alternative for that? So you have, kind of have to feel, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a balance with all of this. Sure. And then just talking about peak week itself, I mean, how much of peak week is absolutely necessary? And if I just kind of, you know, sidestep back to about coaches and, and lack of real scientific knowledge about the human body and the protocols that they're giving, there's been a lot of recent deaths that have been put on blast and and there was actually a movement where people were sharing their peak week protocols and some of these people were on like three diuretics at once and just so extreme i mean how much of that is absolutely necessary that is based on science and or or is it just somebody who's just shooting in the dark or or really what what is the reason to give somebody that much um well that much protocol diuretics yeah, no, etc no, I agree 100%. I think peak week what has been uh, glorified to be this answer all, you know, uh, let's make your body look amazing. And, um, you know, and, and, and in a matter of seven to 10 days, we're going to make this miraculous changeover. But the reality is, is it really takes a long time to really be prepared. And if you're not prepared 10 days out, to me, if you're not prepared two to three weeks out at the minimum, you're not going to be stage ready, you know, that day of the show. So uh, actually one of, one of my um, friends and colleagues, uh, Dr. Victor Press, he's an orthopedic surgeon, but he's an IFPB pro as well. And uh, his motto when he was competing back in the day was, hey, if my glutes aren't striated like four to six weeks out, I'm not ready to compete. And I'm, I means I'm going to have to push back the show. Wow. And, and, and to, you know, obviously striated glutes four to six weeks out, that means you're in phenomenal shape. Right. I mean, you don't have striated glutes in, until you're, you're, you're at a very low body fat level. Uh, so what I see a lot of people doing and, and some of these coaches kind of make their money on this is that uh, they're like, hey, I, I know that you've been doing everything wrong, essentially, for the last so many weeks. And then now I can save you and I can I can make this huge turnaround in seven days or in 10 days. Now, can they make them look better? Maybe. Uh, but how much better? And are they going to really probably be able to win? Probably not. I mean, most of the coaches that are doing a good job with their people, the first thing that we actually say is, let's actually give you ample time to get ready so that essentially about, about a month out from the show, you're basically ready to step on stage. You're kind of now just fine, fine tuning your physique. And then at this point in time, you know, you can actually now play with some of these potential variables that you may play with because peak week is one of these from my experience from a lot of uh, a lot of individual coaches is that they throw everything at the wall and hope something sticks and essentially what's everything is well now you're manipulating carbohydrates so you're carb depleting carb loading you're manipulating electrolytes so you're maybe uh uh, sodium depleting, sodium loading, you're depleting water, maybe you're water depleting, maybe you're water loading, maybe you're doing both. 
Um, that, then you're maybe adding some other type of drug. Maybe you're using insulin, maybe you're not. Uh, maybe you're using a diuretic. Um, and then what type of diuretic? Maybe you're using an herbal diuretic. So it's like you have all these variables that you put into play, not understanding the complexity of the body. It's like, hey, when you manipulate carbs, you can actually manipulate intra and extracellular water, right? I mean, it, there's an osmotic effect to, to how you manipulate carbs. And then if you don't have enough water, well, then you can't really get some of these benefits that you may actually get. So if you're actually trying to carb load while water depleting, well, that's kind of counterintuitive. It's not going to really work. And then how do I absorb those carbohydrates? Well, there are sodium glucose transporters in your gut that are required for you to be able to absorb those carbohydrates. So now if you're not taking in any sodium, how can your sodium glucose transporters work to absorb the carbohydrate that you're giving it? Uh, and then so you're mix and matching all of these things without understanding the intricate details and how they're all involved. And this is where you, where you have some of these issues. And then at the end of the day, like I said before, now it's like nothing really worked. It's like, oh, well, what the hell? So let's just give you a ton of diuretics because yeah, right. that will for sure dry you out. Yeah, Hence the then, three. Then, <laughs> yeah, exact, exactly. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, I mean, these are, you know, they're not even uh, over the counter, you know, Dendelian root type of things, which, which are more gentle diuretics, which which, uh, you know, can be potentially used, you know, carefully, uh, but they're giving you these huge dosages of, you know, the worst case scenario would be like a loop diuretic or worse that I've seen is an injectable loop diuretic or, or what is an a IV loop diuretic. diuretic. What's a, a loop, loop diuretic? diuretic? Perfect. So it's like, like Lasix, for example, it's going to deplete your sodium and your potassium. It's going to deplete all electrolytes. Jeez. So yeah, you're going to lose water weight, but guess what? You're going to, you're going to lose everything. Um, so now, now you, and then not to mention that, of course, all of this plays with your ticker over here. So it's like, Hey, your, your, your heart depends on an, an appropriate ratio of sodium and potassium. And if you start messing with all of that and, and hydration levels. So in addition to adding this diuretic, now they're telling you, okay, don't drink water now. So I'm going to give you this super strong diuretic. And on top of that, don't drink water for the next like 36 hours. Brilliant. Right. So it's like, yeah, you're going to deplete water, but at what cost? And this is now where we see the emergency rooms and all like, of that. Who came up with this? Is this just all word of mouth? I mean, how did this become so out of hand? Yeah. Especially what shocks me is it's on high level athletes. It's like we're talking we need to just professional put you level Olympians <laughs> that are, you know, having these issues. And even some of these Olympians who are um, very high level and they're phenomenal physiques, but they miss their peak. Absolutely. No, it, it happens all the time. And, and talking about those high level athletes, what complicates their component is, uh, let's say you're a, a high level uh, Olympian bodybuilder who's taking androgen and, uh, you know, androgenic anabolic steroids. Maybe you have a higher now, uh, your, your blood's a little bit thicker, your hematocrit levels are a little higher. Uh, you have uh, erythrocytosis. So now you have this thick blood and now you dehydrate that blood. And you don't give up. So now you, you're you're like literally at risk for a blood clot, a stroke, uh, heart heart issues, which is which is definitely what happens. So it, it it definitely complicates matter worse because you have all these other background things that are playing into 
the diuretic use, the, the lack of water. Yeah. So um, your question again, uh, tell me one more time. I, I went on off topic a little but bit. Where, where did it start? Like, where did the idea of diuretics in general even get out there? I mean, obviously, from my understanding and being new in this as well, it was a lot of word of mouth. And over the last three to five years, Instagram, social media, just everything in general has put a lot on blast. I was joking mm-hmm. about putting you on blast because I've never heard anybody in this industry talk about any of the things we're talking about right now with the depth and knowledge that you are. And I you know what it reminds me of? Do you remember way, way back in maybe like third grade, they had that testing in school? Oh my God, the worst. And you would be, it'd be a word problem. And it was like, if this, then that, then this, then that, but how about this? And I'm, I remember reading it and being like, wow, that's a lot of variables. And, you know, it kind of reminds me of it. It's like your brain could explode because there's so many variables. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, being able to understand how many components there are and it, and it in the human like, body. Like, really, nobody's that qualified. Educated. Maybe Maybe you. So we're trying to figure <laughs> out that, where, where did this all And, and, and why yeah, does and it to be honest, I, I don't, you know... I say, I said myself, you know, I'm still a student, you know, I'm still learning and we're, we're still, that's why we're doing some investigations right now to try to understand some of these phenomenons, because at the end of the day, anybody that can tell you, and this is, this is how you can kind of tell uh, sometimes somebody who knows a little bit of science, but sometimes, and that's sometimes the scariest person because they, they know enough to sound really brilliant and to, and to sound very convincing um, and to maybe even throw a couple of, you know, references here and there. But um, not knowing, you know, it's like a glacier, right? It's like you, you just kind of know the surface and you don't know all the other stuff that's underneath. Um, and this is where I like to go. It's like, you know, I read the glacier stuff 20 years ago and I've been reading the glacier stuff 20 years ago. And now I've been diving into what's underneath that glacier uh, and, and, and what goes on and trying to understand that phenomenon and that mechanism of action and how they're all intricately involved. And, um, and I think some of this honestly started, I mean, there are some textbooks out there, and, and I'm not going to say any particular ones because I don't want to uh, put any any books or, or have any enemies out there. But there are plenty of textbooks out there put on by so-called leaders in the industry that have a ton of misinformation out there. And they are typically, I mean, I own them. I read them. I actually followed their stuff back in the day. Um, and, and I've experimented with, with myself. I mean, you would freak out if I told you some of the the crazy peak week protocols that I have done myself. Uh, even one not so long ago, where where it's like, whoa, like what what happened? Because um, I've always been one to say it's like, well, you know, I don't mind experimenting on me, right? And and I don't like to experiment on other people because that's too much too much for me, right? I, I like to know what variables I can control, and I want to be as safe as possible. Um, and and you know, their life is is uh, hey, that's that's the most important thing. I'm not going to risk their health and, and their life. Uh, for me, I've, I've uh, you know, of course I've had it in my life and everything, but I've taken, I, I feel a little more at liberty to take a few more risks, calculated risks, I'm going to say. Uh, I won't say I've done super crazy things like I've heard some people do, but I've done my share of some crazy things. Um, and some of that comes from, you know, uh, trying some of these uh, these protocols out there, or, or some, some of the even things that I that I've read, and then luckily for me, I have this little notebook, very similar to to this here, and I have literally about maybe ten or fifteen of them, where I literally have meticulous notes of everything that I did, what I look like, how much I weighed, uh, what I look like on stage, uh, what I what I drank, what I ate, when I ate it, 
uh, everything measured out. And I, and I literally have notes of all of those different things. And I can tell you, you know, what, what has worked best and what hasn't worked best, at least for myself. Um, and, and that's how you can kind of, you have to collect the data. You have to go with the data and, and find the, the final objective picture as to what things are looking like. Which leads us into your protocol itself. I'd love to deep dive into the paper that you did along with other PhDs and, and scientists where you actually came up with a recommendation for a peak week protocol. I'd love to hear how your protocol and how you came to the conclusions and also um, how it's different from the peak week protocols that are out there. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. And, and actually, it's funny, this, this converse, this paper, the evolution of this paper came about literally on a podcast, I was on a podcast for the National Academy of Sports Medicine. Uh, and uh, the, the, uh, the gentleman interviewing me, uh, Dr. Ricky, he actually asked me, he was asking me some questions about peak week and, you know, manipulating water and sodium. And as, as we kind of asked a few questions, we're like, you know what, there, there really is like no scientific foundation for any of this stuff. So um, I decided to put together a group of individuals. Uh, so Dr. Scott Stevenson, uh, Dr. Brad Schoenfeld, uh, Chris Barricat, who's a, a, he has a master's, he's an athletic trainer. He does a ton of research over at University of Tampa. Uh, and uh, we put our brains together and uh, we started uh, kind of, let, let's, let's discuss peak week and then let's see what does the evidence say about peak week? So let's do a deep dive into the literature and see, okay, what do we know about, you know, what protocols and, and what has been published in the medical literature with regards to all of these different things? What we really came up with is, guess what? Not much. There really isn't a whole lot out there. Uh, and, and this is some of the void that we're trying to fill. So anybody that's trying to tell you X, Y, or Z, I mean, it's purely anecdotal evidence and not, and I, I don't like to knock the bro scientists so much because I always say what I do is let's learn what's being done on the field and let's put the scientific method to what's being done on the field because some things actually work. Like carb loading actually works. We've actually seen some evidence to support that it works. And we, we have a, a, a an actual mechanism of action into how it can potentially work. And there's different ways uh, to deploy it. Water stuff, we're kind of just starting to get a little glimpse into some of that, but that's also tied together with carbohydrate loading and into how that, that kind of works. So they're, they're, they kind of go hand in hand, uh, one, one influences the other. So this evidence-based Peak Week paper really took a deep dive into the literature. We wanted to look at what, what are the protocols that are out there? What are the, the variables that are manipulated, commonly manipulated uh, in the field? And let's look at the science. So in, uh, and we basically broke it down segment by segment. So we kind of go, we looked at the literature, like what's commonly, um, what are common methods used by bodybuilders? And there is some literature in that. We actually found several surveys where we looked at like, okay, a lot of, a lot of bodybuilders do uh, carb loading, carb depleting, or a combination thereof. So they manipulate carbohydrates. Uh, a large percentage manipulate water. A large percentage manipulate sodium. Um, what about protein and fat? There's not a whole lot in there, but we wanted to address those in there. Uh, what kind of supplements do they use? What kind of performance enhancement drugs may they use? So we, we dove into some of the case studies that are reported in the literature where, uh, hey, like, yeah, there's been some people that have ended up in the emergency room uh, because of insulin use or because of uh, diuretic use. And we, we brought that to light. 
Um, and then we actually, where there was a, a gap in the literature, we actually just kind of went back to, let's go into the basic physiology, human physiology. So like the hydration stuff, there's really not a lot of information there. So let's go into the, the physiology of how manipulating water works and, and dehydration practices work. There's, there was a paper done on, on, um, on fighters that actually used a water loading protocol that actually looked at some hormones and looked at what happened, uh, you know, to, to losing water, which may actually be important for a bodybuilder. If you're trying to maybe make a weight class that may be, they may have implications for, for, uh, utilizing some of that. Um, uh, the biggest one that had the most amount of literature again is, is the carbohydrate loading. So we've had a few studies where they've actually looked at carbohydrate loading. We had just published, uh, um, a case study on a, on an individual bodybuilder. And we actually saw increases in muscle thickness after a carbohydrate loading protocol. Um, which was actually very interesting. We, we have, we're working on a paper now with uh, Chris Barricat. He was, he competed last year and he actually collected some data on that. And we're, we were looking, it's like, Hey, like, yeah, we can actually increase muscle thickness with, with an, with an appropriate carbohydrate loading protocol. So we put all of that together um, where there was science available. We discussed that science and what it may say, um, what it might extrapolate into, but also with the caveat of, like we might look at this paper 10 years from now and say like we were completely wrong about everything because hey science evolves right so we have to actually say some of these are based on completely theoretical models um that we're actually looking at and we're extrapolating from certain scientific experiments um now more than likely what's going to happen is we'll be able to fine tune some of our theories a little bit better um but i think we laid a good foundation because the science is strong and we just went back again to where there was science missing. We looked into the basic science of human physiology of hydration and electrolytes. So can you walk us through exactly what a, your peak recommended peak week protocol looks like starting with the week of show, uh, I guess, Sunday? Before, yeah, absolutely. Before the show. So, so the first and foremost, I'm going to, I'm going to actually reinforce something that you stated earlier, which is um, don't look for a miracle on peak week. So if you're not ready, um, four to six weeks out, nothing that you do on peak week is going to get you there. More than likely, if your coach or your judge is telling you that you need to lose water weight, you probably just need to be leaner. So I, I'm going to, I'm going to go back a little bit and say step one of making sure you have a successful peak week is start with plenty of time so you can diet and you can be basically not needing to lose more body fat the week into your show. Okay, so if you're if you're trying to uh, make sprint to the finish line this last week, and if you're trying to lose body fat the last week of peak week, you've done it wrong already. Okay, you re you really shouldn't be trying to lose body fat the last week of, of peak week, which sometimes is what an individual needs. If 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 you still need to lose five pounds of body fat, my recommendation for that individual is forget peak week. Let's get you to just be as lean as possible. It, leading into 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 the last few weeks because that's going to be make the biggest impact more than anything. So assuming that everything lines up right, right? So they've dieted for plenty of time. They're ready about four to five weeks out before their show. Um, one of the recommendations that we make is give yourself some time to be able to practice your peak week protocol. 
So you want to be able to practice what variables you're going to be manipulating. It might be tempting to manipulate all 30 variables, not 30, but there's a lot of variables, right? Water, sodium, carbohydrate. Um, maybe you're going to mess with, uh, with fat loading. You're going to mess with uh, all of these other different training things. So now you threw 25 things at the wall. Well, what worked? So you want to, just like any scientist, you need to try to control as many variables as possible. So you know what effect of each one is having. So if you can start four to six weeks out and you can start manipulating some of these things, uh, the first one I would start with, which is foolproof, is don't try to manipulate your water right at first. I'm going to say manipulate your carbohydrate. That's going to give you the most bang for your buck. We have the most understanding of that. So let's see, uh, for example, um, what kind of carbohydrates do you absorb well? Do you digest well? Do not make you feel bloated? Do not give you gas? Uh, do not constipate you? Uh, how much can you handle? Uh, and, and, and looking at that component, because if you're ready uh, at that point in time, hopefully you're, you're, you have high insulin sensitivity, which means you're going you're gonna to respond very well to the carbohydrate. Your body's going to produce enough insulin to be able to transport all of that in there. Uh, so keep your water intake good. Keep your salt intake normal because that's going to help in the transport of that. And then figure out, okay, like how many carbs do I need? And this is, people are often very scared. Uh, I remember when I worked with a coach many years ago, when he told me three days out to take in like 800 grams of carbs, I was like, what? Like, are you crazy? Are you cr 800 grams? But I listened and you know what? I looked the best that I had ever looked before. Okay. I, I, I remember I took second place at the junior USA championships. It was the best 174 pounds I ever brought to stage. And, and the main thing that we did was we actually just took in a lot of carbs for a couple of days and I carb loaded and, and it, it worked wonders. We didn't do a whole lot of other manipulating. So, um, the, the recommendation that we gave, we actually left, left a lot of room. Uh, and we said, okay, well, the minimum carb intake is probably about four grams per kilogram of body weight. But depending on the individual, you may need to go up to 10 or 12 grams per kilogram of body weight. So there's a large difference there. You know, hence if you're the a, testing. Hence the testing, exactly. Because you may, you may, some individuals may, may fill out very well with only four grams per kilo. Uh, or maybe they, they, maybe they, they, uh, they don't fill out very well on that, but that's what their stomach can handle because nothing is worse than trying to consume all of that. And then now you're bloated, your, your guts out to here, uh, you feel uncomfortable. You're not going to feel good if you on stage about yourself, if you're, if you're, if you have gas and, and stomach distension, your confidence is going to go right out the window. And that's a lot of bodybuilding, right? It's, being able to show yourself, having some confidence. So I think that's really important. Um, yeah, so that's one of, the, one of the variables that we actually say. Now, the other question is, is, okay, do I front load the carbs, back load the carbs, or do I middle load the carbs? So this means uh, front loading would mean if the show's on Saturday, would mean that you're going to do your higher carb intake on maybe Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, and then you're going to kind of ride it out until Saturday. So you do the filling early in the week. That's not my favorite protocol because it, it, it's, it kind of gives you too long of a time window to be able to do it. The other way you can do it is to backload the carb loading, which means I'm going to now load my carb shows on Saturday. So maybe I'm going to load on Thursday and Friday, compete Saturday. 
that may be a strategy you have to use if you have to make a weight class. So I've had to do that before where, hey, I have to weigh so much on Thursday afternoon uh, at check-ins or Friday morning at check-ins. And I only have so much time to do. So if that's your, to make that weight, and if you want to go up uh, and, and you want to carve up, that may be your only option, which kind of go, comes to a decision-making. Is that going to necessarily give you the best look on Saturday? So sometimes you may make the weight great. So you think you're going to be the biggest guy in the class, but you depleted so much, you didn't give yourself enough time to carve up and actually look your best on Saturday. So you might have been better off carving up more aggressively a little bit earlier, maybe being a little bit lighter in the heavier weight class, but you actually look better on stage than you might have looked at the other one. So that's a call that you kind of have to make. My favorite way to do it, if, if, if at all possible, is to do with the carb loading in the middle of the week. So what, I, what, what, what we recommended in the protocol for most of our people was, uh, hey, deplete on Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday. Uh, so the carb intake is relatively low. Uh, and that may mean anywhere from zero to maybe 100 grams of carbs in there. So it, it depends on the person. This is, again, where the testing kind of needs to come in. Um, and then, then you go on Wednesday as you're very aggressive, like you're fully depleted at that point in time. So now you really push the carbs up really high. Uh, how high? Depends on the person. This is where the testing come in. Uh, personally, I, I need a lot of carbs. Uh, Chris Barricat needed a lot of carbs. So we actually took in 800 to 1,000 grams of carbs on that, on that Wednesday. So it, it's a lot of food and you kind of want to spread it out. And then within that is what carbs work better for me. So this is another thing that people make a mistake on is they try foods that they've never tried before on peak week. Why would you do that? It's like, if you, if you haven't been eating that food, you don't know how your body's going to respond to it. So I like to kind of stick to, if you've been eating rice and yams, probably eat rice and yams for that. Um, so you want to kind of stick to, to similar foods. Um, so that's going to vary Thursday, leaning into Thursday. It kind of depends on your results on Wednesday. So you may need to stay at the same pace, 800 to 1,000 grams, or again, 4 to 12 grams of carbs, 4 to 10 grams. Uh, you may need to slow it down a little bit if maybe you're feeling too too full, too uncomfortable. Hopefully, you didn't spill over, but if you did, you're monitoring all of that. And you're kind of doing a, a, a an approach where you're, you're doing several things. Uh, I use the scale. Look at the scale to see what does the scale say. I look at the mirror to see what does the mirror say. Uh, in different poses. Um, and, and I triangulate all of that information to make an assessment whether I need to continue to push the envelope or, or not. So very typically, if you've, if, you've gained, if you've gained weight, but you look harder, you're doing the right thing. If you've gained weight, uh, and maybe you don't need to push too much harder at that point in time, right? If, you, if, you've, uh, if you've gained weight, and I'm, I'm going to go back a little bit. Typically in your carb depletion, I'm going to say on Sunday before you start your carb depletion, uh, I'm going to put a number out. You weigh 180 pounds, okay? You carb deplete on Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. Uh, so by Tuesday, maybe you weigh 177 pounds. So in that carb depletion, you lost three pounds, okay? So now you start carving up on Wednesday. So you carve up all of Wednesday. Well, what do you weigh on Thursday? 
If you still weigh 177 on Thursday and you carved up with four to five grams per carb uh, per body, per pound of, or per uh, kilogram of body weight, you didn't push the envelope enough because you're still basically at the same weight where you were before. So hopefully you want to get up to that 180 or ideally even slightly higher uh, while being as hard as you can without being spilled over. So it's kind of a, a, an assessment of where you are looking at the scale. And this is why I usually tell for myself, I weigh myself every day. And as I get closer to peak week, I weigh myself maybe even every few hours to kind of make assessments to, to how I'm looking and, and what the scale is saying. Uh, just as a, as a judge, the scale isn't tell me all, but it gives me some data, a data point to be able to make educated decisions based and on that. And this is just talking about carbohydrates. Yeah, we haven't else, even yeah. talked That's about sodium. Yeah, right. <laughs> we haven't talked about water. Oh we haven't God. talked about fat. We haven't talked about exercise. This is just one component. And we haven't talked about the difference between a male and a female, the difference between a bikini competitor yeah. and a bodybuilder. Are you natural? <laughs> How many times have you done this? How old are you? 20 versus 40 plus. I mean, what division all those are you things. In? <laughs> I mean, Guillermo. <laughs> yeah. When you write, when, when's your book All come that. out? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's, it's so true. Um, well, I'm going to, I'm going to tackle one big one first, which is what division are you in? I think that's a really big one to hit because, um, obviously, I mean, if, if you're in the traditional male bodybuilding, you want to be as hard and as big as possible. It doesn't matter if you're physique, class of physique or bodybuilding. Uh, that's just straight across. If you're a female physique competitor or a female bodybuilder, the same thing's going to carry over. Uh, and I'm going to say, looking at some of the figure women lately, probably the women figure as well, because they're looking pretty hard and pretty lean as well. Uh, yes, nowadays, I'm looking at, I mean, the, the female physique, uh, I mean, uh, figure competitors now look like the bodybuilders from 2000, uh, some of them. I mean, they they look they look just extremely muscular and extremely hard, in my opinion. Um, now, uh, the bikini competitors are a whole different animal because you you bring them super hard and super strided. That's not a good look. That's not what they're looking for. They want that femininity. So so with them, I'm going to say, actually, the less you manipulate, probably the better. And in fact, sometimes a better look for a for a, a bikini competitor that's excessively lean. And this is what a lot of coaches. Do, not, I'm, not, I'm going to say some coaches do is they actually bring their bikini girls in super lean. And then what they do is they spill them over on purpose so that they look just right on competition day because them a, a really lean female uh, bikini competitor spilt over gets that softer line, softer looks if you mm -hmm. if you can actually time it right. So mm -hmm. there's different strategies which you can do. Of course, the other alternative is bring them bring them in not as hard, and then now you really don't manipulate as much uh, within there. You might want to carve them up a little bit, but uh, the variables are less and the extreme of what you go through is definitely less for the female competitor. So that that's that's one big component. I wonder if some of that just I'm just speculating. This is just for conversation purposes. You just sparked a thought in my head about the bikini competitors, how one protocol is to dial them in super, super lean and then let them spill over. And I'm wondering if it has to do with the influx of PEDs and the actual hardness that occurs from the PEDs and maybe that like side effect to kind of spill over. So you still have that softness. I mean, again, I'm just speculating and, and thinking outside the box here that there's a lot of PED use and doesn't some of what they're using, isn't it actually make the look hard? Um, well, I think, I think, well, it, it does contribute the, the PED itself would, would, would contribute to basically increasing 
muscle mass, of course, and then it may facilitate fat loss in, in one component, thus bringing them in leaner, et cetera. So if you're like utilizing growth hormone, uh, you're using maybe some sort of, uh, you know, androgen, you're using clenbuterol, for example, I mean, all of those are going to work synergistically to help you have more muscle and help you have less body fat, which would make you harder in a sense. Uh, so yeah, that would definitely influence, um, you know, the outcome uh, for some of that. And and I always, uh, I'm glad that you highlighted that because sometimes people say it's like, well, only bodybuilders do it's like, no, like bikini girls take a lot of PEDs too. You know, like they, they, they sometimes think that they don't take them, but, but no, it's prevalent uh, among them. That's, that's another side note uh, that I want to study look, looking at. It's like, Hey, how many of these uh, non uh, or female competitors in general, like what are they using? What quantities are they using? Um, and because it's prevalent in them too. And, you know, it's interesting you say that we were in um, Florida and we were talking to somebody at a gym and just having a conversation and she's a b- aspiring bikini competitor, aspiring mm-hmm. to get her pro card. Younger, right? She so was she very young. She looked, she looked great. Yep. She, you know, her, her, uh, fra- everything was achievable. Everything from her physique was achievable. And, and she was sharing how she wants to get her pro card. So she wanted to take her physique to the next level. So she started using, um, I think it was Primo. It was, it, oh, no, Primo. believe it or not, it was Primo. <laughs> right. Wow. So she was starting to yeah. use Primo and she used estrogen blockers. And, and I looked at her and I said, you know, don't take this the wrong way. I said, but you look like this look was something that it looks like you could have gotten without that. Yeah, naturally. Maybe a little bit more time. You know, yeah. I, so I'm, no, I'm, it, it's interesting that there's a, there's a lot of PED use that you're talking about. And some of it is just, you can't really tell as dramatically the virilization as it is dramatic in a bikini competitor. But it's interesting that you say that and you actually want to start studying that. So just want to put yeah, that no, out Yeah, it, no, it's, uh, I think it's something, um, uh, we're going to probably see more of these effects as we, because I think it's, it's, uh, it's becoming more prevalent. And, uh, and I think, you know, this virilization and all these other uh, symptoms take place later in time, you know, it's, it's length of exposure and, and dosage related. And a lot of these women are stomping on that androgen receptor like right away. And that should be the last thing that they stomp on. There are many other variables you can manipulate that are going to help enhance muscularity and body composition, not the androgen receptor. And, and, and uh, you keep smashing that androgen receptor, it's just going to lead to trouble. That, that should be the last, the last uh uh, variable that gets used by females, but it's often the first. And, uh, and then, you know, and then there's the, the bro science of, well, just take like 10 milligrams of Anavar, bro. That's, that's just as gentle as can be. Uh, no, it's not. And, and it's, it's not that gentle as you think. Uh, so it, it's, uh, just, just a lot of misnomer information. For sure. And then just talking about peak week. So we talked a little bit about the girls, but what about age? Does it affect, does this protocol, the one that you, you wrote about in, in your paper, does it also, does it, does it apply to people who are 20 and also people that are 40? Does it apply to people who are in PDDs and people who are not on PEDs? Does it apply to all? Yeah, I, I, I think it can, cause we left a lot of room and like, you look, how much fat loading do we do? What's the protein intake? And it's based on body weight. It's based on a lot of things. So there's a lot of, uh, even though it's it's a it's it's a it's a, a, a broad broad strokes type of protocol. There's a lot of individualization where you can actually you know the carb intake may be four grams or up to twelve. The protein intake may be you know three point three grams. It may go up to three point seven in certain instances. The fat loading may go you know from 0.5 grams uh, 
to maybe one gram per kilogram. So it, there's a lot of flexibility uh, in that. Um, and a lot of that, I think, I think it more comes down to rather than age, I think it more comes down to, you know, what division are you in, number one, and what what's the ultimate goal to win that division. Um, PEDs definitely have a, a component on it. Obviously, if you're if you're if you're working with an individual that is using uh, maybe uh, thyroid T3, for example, well, you you may have uh, you may have to feed them a little bit more, for example, because they're they're gonna they're gonna be uh, they have this extra hormone in them that's gonna help facilitate that. Um, you're gonna obviously if they're using PEDs, it's, that's gonna affect everything else because now their lean body mass is gonna be higher, their body weight is gonna be higher. So when you're doing everything of grams per kilo the absolute number is actually going to be bigger when you're, when you're, when you're doing that. Um, if you're utilizing, um, you know, uh, maybe sometimes insulin, maybe something, I don't like to use insulin, uh, at all for, for, for pre-contest there, it's, you know, it's really not needed. You're already insulin, uh, sensitive enough. Uh, if you, if you've been dieting long enough, uh, but some individuals do use that with the idea that it may facilitate, uh, you know, more intake of the carbohydrates and the other food that you're that you're giving it. Um, so those components, and then uh, so it's more of an individual basis. I'm going to say. So the key, I think, to, to answer your question is really focus on you and what works for you, and then kind of apply these variables to kind of figure out. They give a lot of flexibility into into how much you can you can actually take. Uh, uh, one big example, uh, Chris Barricat in his in his uh, peak week protocol that we're we're working on the case study. I'm publishing that case study right now, but uh, he took a lot of meticulous data and um, he actually altered our water protocol. So even though he did taper water intake, he didn't cut water intake to quite as much as we actually utilize. We use the protocol that was used by the by the fighters, where they actually uh, normal intake for them was 40 milliliters per kilogram of body weight. Then they went up to hundred milliliters per kilogram of body weight to hyperhydrate. And then they dropped it to 15 milliliters per kilogram of body weight. And they were able to induce a significant weight loss over time, uh, over that period of time. So Chris actually just, he actually had a higher water intake. And then all he did was he cut his, his, from his peak water intake, he just cut it by 50%. Uh, but that was still a lot of water um, that more water than a lot of people would take. I think he drank something like a gallon and a half of water li literally the day before the show, which is much more water than a lot of individuals take. But mm -hmm. for him, it worked great. Hmm. Interesting. Probably want to talk about the, is it any different for ketogenic? Yeah. I mean, so I've, I've, I've done what I call the human experiment since I've got involved in this industry, just fitness enthusiast myself. And I've literally, like yourself, have tested just about everything I can think of from, from vegan to high carb to low carb to every fad, paleo, keto, high fat, uh, just protein. I'm, I'm currently entertaining the carnivore idea. I've, I've just <laughs> like literally just like, what the hell is this going to do if I do this? How, what's my energy going to be like? What's my performance? And I put an adequate amount of time like at least three to six months, some of these at least a year or more so that I can see. He's like, a committed man. I yeah, love it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a tester. She can't get rid of me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, but, um, you know, being in the, in the, in the carnivore field right now, where he I'm does at, give me the furry eyeball though, when I'm eating my carbs, when you're on this carnivore guy, <laughs> I did six <laughs> raw egg yolks for my, my coffee prior to this podcast. In you case anyone was wondering, in a cup down six, six egg yolks. I'm like, 
<laughs> yeah, you know, it's so, just interesting to me, um, and I am very much in the bro science kind of things, meaning like I'm not educated as, as much as the majority like yourself or anybody that, that would be. I've had the honor to work with, of course, my wife here, Michelle, and uh, Dr. Mike T. Nelson, which you know as well. He, he worked with me one-on-one for quite a long time. I, I uh, took his FizzFlex and his... Um, as well as a flex, uh, diet. flex diet, right, mm-hmm. and learned a tremendous amount about the body, and know that I really don't know anything. <laughs> like, there's so it's an amusement park in here. So, um, <laughs> yeah, like every time I, I change something, it's pretty crazy. But so let's just say he was on a cardamore diet, for uh, so, example. Yeah, what would happen so to his I'm week very of show interested protocol? In mitochondria function and, and fats being a driver to that, and you know, obviously, I know I need electrolytes. I I, I get a lot of electrolytes, salt, potassium, things of that nature. I mean, my salt intake's at least eight grams or more a day right now. So I'm very conscious of that from an energy level standpoint, a sleeping level standpoint. I use it. I find, um, like yourself, the, the scale and pictures or the mirror tend to be the best indicator as well. So I, I stick to that the majority of time as well as energy output. But man, I, I like low-grade inflammation, chronic inflammation, digestive issues, things like that when you start talking about carbs and, and that. And I'm wondering, like, are we not really pushing ourselves enough in a way if we have a different fuel source, may, maybe fats, that primary satiating fuel with protein being the, the number one factor there, um, and then carbs may be secondary with the, with the digestive system being a little bit let you know lessened as far as irritability maybe inflammation not as much maybe i can recover a little bit faster maybe i can sleep a little better how how does that all play a part have you worked with ketogenic or it's not even ketogenic just maybe fat dominant you know sources or or things of that nature because it's not really book ketogenic i'm my protein's way above where ketogenic would be so what, right. do, you, what do you think about those protocols and have you seen that in bodybuilding because obviously carbs are a big factor here yeah, I, I've definitely seen it. Um, definitely not, not a fan of it, uh, just because, I mean, the, the carbohydrate is the primary, you know, fuel source that we're meant to utilize. It's going to, you know, give you the most the most efficient source of carbohydrate, um, you know, particularly for, for fueling the type of activities that 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 we're going to be uh, utilizing. So I um I'm going to say, of course, you can lose body fat on any one of those diets, you know, and at the end of the day, the common denominator among all of them is creating a caloric deficit. Mm-hmm. So, you know, how you create that caloric deficit, whether you're, you know, doing it from decreasing your fats, decreasing your carbs, decreasing your carbs and your fats, uh, decreasing all other food groups. So obviously the carnivore diet, well, what are you decreasing? Well, everything that's not carnivore is basically not part of the carnivore diet. Mm-hmm. So your your energy intake is limited from uh, you know, from all these sources, except for this one source. So they all work on, on this component, but, but to your point, there's a lot of other components that you want to consider. And I think when we look at the standard Western diet is, you know, we just have a, a, an overflow an excess an abundance of all of these other variables that, that we're overtaking. And, and I mean, and I just, I always just kind of like to use this example as like, you know, you go to your common restaurant, right? Whether it's an Italian restaurant, steakhouse, or or, or a Mexican restaurant, you know, and, and like, like, what are the first thing that you're given? So I'm going to say a steakhouse, right? You're giving that nice warm loaf of bread, right? You're going to mm, slap some butter, butter in there, which is delicious, <laughs> right? And then so now you've got, you got the carb, you got the fat. Uh, maybe you have a cocktail with that. So you mm, now you got yeah. the alcohol and you have the carb. And I'm, I'm not a drinker, so that wouldn't be me anyway. I'd like, I'd go with the Diet Coke, look at me like, you don't want wine? Like, no, I don't want wine, just give me Diet Coke. <laughs> uh, then you have the steak and then you have the potatoes and you have 
uh, maybe you decide to be good and you share a dessert instead of having. But now before you know it, you've had you've had carbon fat, you've had carbon more fat, you've had carbon more fat. And, you know, you've literally taken in three, four hundred grams of carbs and maybe another hundred grams of fat in one sitting. Right. Sounds fabulous. it's it's delicious, right? It's like let's let's go to the steakhouse now. What are you guys doing for lunch? <laughs> I'm <laughs> yeah, on my way. But, yeah, but it's it's incredible what happens. And then when you put all of that together, and I mean, and, and and a lot of people unfortunately eat like that a lot of the time. You know, not necessarily the steakhouse, but they're eating this type of highly processed, you know, uh, high. Uh, high, uh, not very nutrient dense, but Mm. very calorie dense foods, uh, which leave you not very satisfied. Number one, leave you craving more. Uh, There was just a study published today looking at like, if you eat this hedonic diet, eating whatever you want, like it's like, Hey, it, it, yeah, you, you get to, you get to feel satisfied that you ate that, but it actually increases your ghrelin levels, not decreases. So it makes you hungrier Mm. to want to eat more. Whereas when you eat a non-hedonic diet, a non-hedonic diet, you actually um, you actually decrease the uh, the hunger hormones, which can actually help that. So it's the more bland type food is going to kind of not make you want to eat much more anymore. So there's a lot of kind of evidence to show some of that. So to your point, yeah, there's a lot of things that are involved, and when you're when you're consuming a lot of these foods, which are typically the highly processed carbohydrates with the fats, which is the delicious stuff, right? The ice creams, the cookies, the chips, like, you know, all the stuff that you can eat all day long. Um, and, and that's just, and that's the stuff that creates all of these issues that you're talking about. Sure. You know, when I was working with, with Mike, Mike T. Nelson, uh, we slowly ramped up because I came off a, a very fat dominant protocol and he slowly wrapped up my carbs you know 25 grams 50 grams every two to four weeks depending on my my exercise output and whatnot and we we initially got to about 250 and we pushed a little bit further three 350 I absolutely noticed a difference in my performance but what I also noticed a difference in was the aches the the amount of aches that I was able to get I know that I was able to lift heavier my my uh, bent over rows went from a massive jump. I think I was doing like a hundred pounds and I jumped to like 150 when I went from 200 grams of carbs to about 350. There was a massive, I mean, 40, 50 pounds was, I was like, wow, where did that come from? I never had that before. But then now even today, my, uh, my soft tissue is still sore from that. And that was six, seven months ago, you know? So it's, it's like this love hate relationship that I'm still learning about with how to utilize the, you know, ATP properly, just energy in general for what's needed for whatever in the sport. And I'm kind of toying with that with myself. So it's just interesting to hear your perspective and kind of see where it's at. And there's so many different philosophies. And then I get lost in digestion and protein being a building block and like, well, if we're not really digesting this stuff, then are we even utilizing the energy we think we are? And then like, what about vitamins? Like, are we even getting proper vitamins? Are we even recovering? Like, is the foundation completely wrong? I want to be like that one special guy that figures so it out. So I think you, you know? guys, the two of you could spend all day and just geek out. Yeah, absolutely. I don't, I'm down. I, I'm you, down. <laughs> it's steak dinner, though. Required diet coke. I got it. It's on well, me. <laughs> which actually leads me to one more question with regards to flying. Um, one variable that I found was challenging as a competitor was when I had to fly for shows. There was actually a show I drove to a pro show. I drove eight hours so that I wouldn't have to fly because I was worried that it would affect the way that I showed up on stage. So is there a way to like hedge your bets or something that 
or what do you do? How does your peak week protocol, like the one that you, you wrote your paper on, which by the way, the link will be in the podcast. So people will have a direct link to that, that paper that they can read, but how does, how does flying affect your peak week? Yeah, no, it definitely does. And I'm going to say it's like, it's like anything else you have to give time to uh, acclimatize. So um, the best way, if you're, if you're going to be competing, the best way to do it is to try to fly in a little bit early. Uh, so uh, we're going to be competing in uh, New Jersey uh, later this year, my wife and I. Uh, so we're, we compete on Friday, Saturday. So we're actually going to get in uh, at least a couple of days before on Wednesday to make sure that we're minimizing all of that. So at least you have, you know, 24, 48 hours to let your body kind of get used to, because you, you are going to go at altitude, you're going to come down and may manipulate very little, but, um, you know, you want to kind of be in the, in the new time zone and in, in your new kind of environment, trying to be as, again, homeostasis is what your body likes. So if you can build a routine in the new time zone in the new area, maybe you're at altitude. If you're, if maybe you fly in, in a place where you're at, you know, I don't know, 5,000 uh, feet up in, you know, in elevation. So that's going to play an impact. So you want to just try to give your body a little bit of time, just like any other athlete would, you know, when they, when they, when they're, when they're going to compete, they typically will fly out at least, you know, 48 hours or so beforehand. Obviously if it's a big event, like the Olympics, it might be a week or two before. Um, so their body can actually get used to all of those components because I mean, obviously, I mean, number one, mentioning the stress of that, you know, getting to the airport on time, going through security, sitting in the plane, you know, all of those things are going to add stress and it's going to throw off your routine and that throwing off your routine is going to influence your stress and, and stress is going to potentially make you hold water. So uh, there's all of these other things that are going to be involved. So if you can actually give yourself a, a 40, 24 to 48 hour flush period where you can now land get yourself situated, get yourself settled into your hotel or your Airbnb, uh, get your, get your food, right. Get yourself into a, I'm going to wake up at this time. I'm going to eat at this time. And you build that routine again, that alone will help ease your mind and, and, and help you help you peak. But if you're in that week of show itself, where you're talking 24 to 48 hours, it sounds like that 24 to 48 hours is kind of when you're seeing if everything that you just did is going to work. And now you've got the extra variable of being on a plane. So when you're saying 24 to 48 hours, do you mean more like the week before? Or do you mean literally 24 to 48 hours from the show? Well, I guess I should have expanded a little bit further back. So it if, if your show is Saturday, you know, I wouldn't show up on, on Friday. In fact, I wouldn't even show up on Thursday. I would probably show up maybe on Tuesday, Wednesday, if possible. But you're right. I mean, um, the ideal scenario would probably be Tuesday because you're not, it, based on our protocol, you're, you're actually not eating much Tuesday, except it's, it's usually a depletion phase anyway. Mm. Um, so that way you can start your loading maybe on Wednesday in, where you're going to be. But sometimes, depending on your schedule, like I know our schedule, like we can't get there on on uh, on Tuesday. So we're going to we're actually leaving first thing Wednesday morning. So I'll spend all of Wednesday eating uh, because that's kind of my 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 uh, full carving up component, Right. And then I'm not I'm not going to really measure the effects of that so much until Thursday. And on Thursday, I can make some uh, critical adjustments as needed. Yeah. So there, that sounds, that sounds reasonable because if you're doing the, um, middle approach, which is what you were talking about earlier, where you're carb carbing around Wednesday. So Tuesday you're still depleting. So that makes sense of come, especially 
if you're if you're flying for me, I am hypersensitive to to flying personally. It doesn't matter if I'm competing or not. I just am. My legs will swell. It's just how it is. So is there anything additional from additional water, additional sodium or less water, less sodium on that Tuesday that you would suggest for somebody who's flying who is hypersensitive? Yeah, I, I think probably you're you're probably gonna want a, a higher, probably higher water intake, which is sometimes hard in the plane because they only give you those tiny little cups and you can't fill up your water bottle. So you might need to spend a hundred dollars buying the the 16 ounce water bottles at the yeah. at the plane after you or, go through just security. Keep pushing the button. And I'm and always in the middle seat. Over. I'm always in the yeah. middle seat. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So you have to bother people. You need to go to the bathroom. Yeah. 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 So, so, so more water then is what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, I think more waters and then and then just, you know, try to get yourself as relaxed as possible. If you can recline, you know, uh if you can if you can pony up the first class ticket that lays all the way back, get that. <laughs> but of course, we don't have that luxury. We're not going first class, that's for sure. <laughs> We're going uh, as coach as possible, like on the side of the wing. <laughs> hey, you got it. Just got to get there. <laughs> we just got to get there. I'm like, I, I don't, I don't need any 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 fancy options. I, I'll hang on to the to the to the wing. That's fine. Are you? I, I may have missed that. Are you competing? Competing? Or are you going yeah. to support? Oh, you are. No, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm competing. Yeah, I'm doing the NPC Universe uh, in uh, in uh, June. At the end of June, actually, it's July first or second. I believe it's a Saturday. First awesome. Saturday of July. And my wife competes the day before, so uh, I'm doing a qualifier a little before that. But yeah, I'm, I'm excited. Mm. Um, it, it's been the first time. Uh, it's been a couple of years since I, since I competed, uh, so I'm excited to step back on stage. And what cool. division is your wife competing in? And are she'll you doing her training? Okay. Are you doing her nutrition? Oh my, is she listening? Yeah, yeah she's very good. She's actually really good. As you she's, can tell, he's not. <laughs> yeah, no. Yeah, she. My wife's actually relatively easy to coach. She's she she likes to learn, but she follows directions, and she's a. Uh, she's got a she's got an accounting background, so she's very methodical and entering everything and i mean and, and it's to the t so she's very good fantastic awesome we gotta i know you you've been giving us so much of your time and yeah. we're so grateful for it there we actually we probably got through like half of everything oh we have so God. many questions I but know. you know i'd love to maybe ask you what what is the worst bro science thing you've ever done when preparing for a show i'd love to oh you know God. maybe maybe ask you if you could share to the audience your worst bro science moment uh, myself or that i've seen somebody do on you Yours. On me. Okay. <laughs> well, honestly, I, I, I'm going to even say uh, it was actually even after I wrote this paper, actually last year or not last year, uh, in in 2020 of uh, December 2020, I competed at the uh, NPC USA's and, and I thought it would be a great idea to uh, drop down to the lightweight class, which I haven't been for years and years and years. Uh, and in order for me to get down to the lightweight class, I, I, I weighed a, uh, 168, I believe, uh, a day before the show and the, the cutoff weight is 154. So yeah, I lost 14 pounds of water 14. over, over a 24 hour period. How did and you not I, die? Yeah, you, I mean, not, yeah. not trying to be funny. I'm serious. How did you lose 14 pounds in your muscle? Not, your heart you thought not you were going to be harder. You yeah. thought you would oh, add no, an advantage. Yeah well, yeah. well, what I did is I, my, my thought was, if I can cut down to the weight, I still have about a 36 hour window to be able to carve up. But to be honest, I was in it at 168. I really should have been about, I was, I was about four or five pounds from really being in the best condition possible. So I was in good condition, but I was about four pounds off, four or five pounds 
fatter than I normally am when I'm at my best. So the combination of having that extra four or five pounds of body fat and dropping down to that extra weight class, uh, and it, you know, it took some aggressive measures for me to get that. Uh, I, I did, uh, there's some things on the paper that I actually implemented, but I, I mean, I dropped the weight and, uh, uh, I made it and uh, immediately the, the protocol was immediate rehydration and, uh, in high quantities and then, uh, immediate carb loading. Uh, like literally I stepped on the scale. The next thing I did was I went to my car, drink, 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 uh, and then also uh, start start the carb loading process, but um, it it backfired because one I knew I was flat. I mean I looked like that dehydrated plume I was talking about. That's exactly mm. what I look like with a little layer of fat on top because I wasn't quite lean enough. Mm-hmm. Um, and then um, what ended up happening was is my body just I couldn't absorb all of that in time. Mm. Um, so my stomach was uncomfortable. Um, you know and. Uh, I, I ended up placing seventh, which wasn't awful, but it's definitely not my best. It was not my best look. My legs were tiny. Um, and, uh, you know, you could see stri- striations in my back, striations in my glutes, but I just, I wasn't the biggest, fullest, best version of myself. Um, so that was a, that was a strategy that I, that Ooh. I utilize. How long did it take you to, to come that. back from that? Oh man. Well, let me tell you, it was, uh, I rebounded heavy. I, 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 I got down to 54 and, uh, by that was on Thursday by Monday, I was 184. So I I rebounded 30 pounds. Uh, yeah, very, very, very heavily. Uncomfortable. Did you, and and did you get stretch marks? I mean, no, no stretch marks, but I mean, I, I did have, you know, a little bit of pitting edema and, and, uh, you know, I mean, not, not comfortable, you know, hard breathing and it's, it's, it's very uncomfortable. And then, and then slowly, but surely my body kind of stabilized at about 185, 190, but with, with the excess body fat on again. So I, I literally went from, I don't know, I was maybe 6% body fat and then I went up to like 12 in a matter of three weeks. Wow. Yeah. So were you just bored? You were just, you just been competing so long. So you were just like, you know what, I'm going to try and see if I can make the lightweight category again. <laughs> you know, I, I really, I thought I, I thought that it, I could make it work, but, um, I think the two biggest things the thing that I miscalculated was really not losing that extra little bit of body fat, because if I would have been four or five pounds leaner, that means I would have had to lose less water weight, which means I probably would have been able to fill out. Okay. But losing that extra five pounds in just water to be able to make the weight in addition to, um, not having, um, having that dehydrated fat on there just basically wasn't a good look. So if I would have had an extra four weeks of dieting to be able to come in a little bit tighter, um, I think I could have made it work um, as long as I, because uh, uh, I, you know, I, losing, I think, I think about three to 4% of your water weight is probably doable and manageable without, without putting too much at risk. Once with you or start without going, a diuretic? Without a diuretic. Yeah. So without, without a diuretic. So, you, I mean, I think you could lose three to 5% reasonably safe and, and still be able to kind of come back. But uh, otherwise, I mean, yeah, it, it's not not the best scenario. And I think that's important to note. That's a huge takeaway is what you're talking about is achievable without diuretics. And a lot of the dangers that have been happening with the deaths that are right before the show are from a lot of these protocols. You mentioned um, insulin, you mentioned diuretics and those being super dangerous. So and what you've been talking about with your peak week protocol is actually not from an enhanced athlete standpoint, correct? That paper? Yeah, the paper. Yeah. I mean, we, we talk about 
different uh, protocol, or I'm going to say different things used by perform by enhanced athletes. But th that being said, the the actual protocol itself does not utilize any uh, PEDs. They're not to say that an enhanced competitor couldn't use it, but we, even in an, as an as a even if you're using other PEDs, I still wouldn't recommend a diuretic. It's completely unnecessary to use a diuretic. I think it's actually counterproductive and and ultimately not needed. You you really if you're doing if you're doing things correctly, even if you're an enhanced competitor using other PEDs, you don't need a diuretic. So they could follow the same peak week protocol in the that you provided the suggestions. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah exactly. Exactly. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah, so I mean I want to give a moment for you to just offer uh, where people can hear more about you. You offer a tremendous amount of education online on social media. You're constantly giving uh, studies and, and really quality info out there. And I think it's important to share science, you know, not bro science, even though you said bro science is good because you kind of learn from it a little bit and study it. But I'd love for you to um, share with people where they can find more information about you. Yeah, absolutely. So um, my Instagram handle is at Dr. Gfit, all spelled out. So Dr. Gfit spelled out, uh, and it's one word. And uh, that is, um, I'm also on Facebook. I I, I post on both uh, both platforms there. I do have a a, a very uh, I'm going to say sad YouTube channel because I don't put a lot of content into it. <laughs> I have a couple of really cool videos that I made a little a little time ago, but it's not something that I've invested a lot of time energy recently. I've actually had a couple of students say, uh, Dr. Escalante, you need to post more stuff like you did on earlier. And I said, yeah, I know I just need to find more time. But I've been focusing a lot of my time on on my writing, uh, you know, in, in the scholarly uh, peer reviewed research. So that's where a lot of my energy has been and doing some new research studies. Uh, so, but yeah, uh, Instagram and Facebook are the best two to find me and, uh, uh, and then look out for my, my papers, uh, in, uh, on Google scholar or on PubMed. Um, and, uh, we really try to, uh, uh, again, bring a lot of light into, into this topic. We have a lot of research coming out uh, on this. We, we have a one, one article on peer review right now in the journal of systemic conditioning research. Uh, we have another case study we're working on. Uh, and we're going to be publishing more data related to this subject of, of peak week and peak week protocols. And this makes me so excited. And I'm hoping that we can have you back on the show at some point. We Definitely. have so much more to talk about. Really 100%. appreciate your time today. Yeah. And I will again Absolutely. be posting a link to the the study itself, the the current study that is. Yeah, uh, the, so so just so you know, the next show would be just me. So we can get deep down, you know. <laughs> I've been easing her out of, out of the picture as long as I could here. No. Co-host is becoming host, huh, Michelle? Yeah. <laughs> he's he's a, a lifelong curi curious, very curious, and there's nothing wrong with that. I think you actually you bring some quality questions from, you know, people that are not so much into the, you know, you've been competing for over 20 years, so have I. And I think her perspective is we might talk from like, oh, yeah, you know, you know what I mean? You know what I mean? And you're over here like, no, I don't. I don't know what you mean. Yeah. So I, I hope no, that a, we were able good. to shed a lot of light today upon no, questions. No, it's great. Awesome. Well, I appreciate you for uh, you. having me over on your show. I look forward uh, to uh, being back in the near future. I'm glad that we were able to meet uh, through uh, Dr. Nelson. He's a great guy. And yeah. uh, thanks for having me. Thank yeah. you so Thank much, you Dr. So much. Guillermo Escalante. So follow him on, on Instagram at Dr. D-O-C-T-O-R, G-Fit, Dr. G-Fit. And yep, we look forward it. to having you on the show again. Thank you so much. Awesome. Thank you. Take care. Ever wonder if you are posing correctly for your division? Learn to Pose is dedicated to taking out the guesswork on how to pose for all categories in bodybuilding. 
Learn five ways you can improve your posing skills in five minutes guaranteed at www.learntopose.com. There are free posing tutorials available for the bikini, figure, and men's physique categories, and more on the way for other divisions in bodybuilding. It's free, so go access your free posing tutorial for bikini, figure, or men's physique at learntopose.com.